you have your Bibles, turn with me to the Song of Songs. If you're not familiar with where that might be, it's kind of in the middle of your Bible. If you find Psalms, it goes Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Song of Songs. So that'll help you track it down. So there's a lot of different ways that people interpret the Song of Songs. And so it requires an interpretive decision when you come to preach it to a group of people like you. But I think that the way that we should understand the song is that the song is building up to a crescendo in the middle, and then it's a digression after that. And so what we're going to do is this week and next week, we're going to look at three questions. We'll look at the first two questions in your outline this week and the third question next week. But we're going to really focus on those middle chapters because I think that what the song is pointing us to of most importance are those middle sections, three, four, five, six. Okay, so that's where we're really going to be the next two weeks. So let's look at Song of Songs, chapter 3. We're just going to read the first five verses to start with, and then I'll kind of read it as we go this morning. It says, on my bed by night. And you'll, you'll notice the headings are really helpful. If you have an ESV, I think they're especially helpful um, in understanding who's talking because it can get, you can kind of get lost. And so it tells us right here, the bride is the one that's talking. You probably have that as a heading. I just want to point that out. Chapter 3, verse 1, on my bed by night, I sought him whom my soul loves. I sought him, but found him not. I will rise now and go about the city in the streets and in the squares. I will seek him whom my soul loves. I sought him, but found him not. The watchmen found me as they went about in the city. Have you seen him whom my soul loves? Scarcely had I passed them when I found him whom my soul loves. I held him and would not let him go until I brought him into my mother's house and into the chamber of her who conceived me. I adjure you, O daughters of Jerusalem, by the gazelles or the does of the field, that you not stir up or awaken love until it pleases. Let's pray to the Lord together this morning. Heavenly Father, I pray this morning that you would minister to us through your word and through your spirit. I pray that you would minister to singles who are struggling with what this world says about relationships, about sex. I pray with teenagers who are grappling with a conflicting worldview of what they're receiving at school and what they're seeing on Netflix and what they're hearing now here from the scripture. That Lord, your way would triumph and be shown as transcendent and, and helpful and wonderful. I pray for marriages that are struggling, that today you might begin healing them, ministering to them, drawing husbands and wives to one another. I pray, Father, where there is shame, that today there would be victory and grace and mercy. I pray for those that have been scarred by past relationships, by abuses, that the gospel would Meet them where they are with a healing salve that would make them whole again. Lord, we offer humbly ourselves to you now. And we plead with you, O God, that you would speak to us. We ask these things now in Jesus' name. Amen. You can be seated. So there's probably nothing in ministry that makes me more nervous than performing one of your weddings. And some of you, I've been privileged to be a part of your wedding, and maybe I didn't tell you then, but I'm telling you right now, I'm seeing Colin and Al's never smiling at me right now, that their wedding, like, I'm telling you, I was nervous the whole time. You see, like, two of the hardest tasks that you have in ministry are weddings and funerals, okay? Now, they, they come with the territory. They come with the job. You know what I'm saying? But they're hard because, like, I'm sure this isn't true of your family, but for a lot of families, they get weird around weddings and funerals. And there's a lot of emotions that are surrounding weddings and funerals. And there's a lot of plans that are surrounding weddings and funerals. But weddings make me a million times, and that's not even hyperbole, a million times more nervous than a funeral. Because in a funeral, we just want the promises. We want to get through it together. We want to hope in the resurrection. We want, to, we want to just get to the other side. And none of us have ever spent time dreaming about the funeral of our loved ones. Oh, but weddings. Oh, but weddings. Weddings, every detail has been agonized over since she was six years old. She has been planning her wedding longer than she could read and write. 
And she wants it perfect. Perfect. She wants the unity candle, sand, bench, monkey vine. Perfect. The ceremony, perfect. And so I like in weddings, the role of the minister in a wedding, I think it's kind of like the offensive lineman on the football team. If they've done their job well, you don't even know who they are. If, if, they've done, if they do their job well, you're not talking about them, you're not thinking about them. It's only when they mispronounce the name, you know? It's only when they skip a line. It's only when they miss an assignment. That's when the people talk about the, the, the person that's officiating the ceremony. And so I always feel like my responsibility in a wedding is to like be a piece of furniture, you know? Like I just want to be a piece of furniture that's standing before the bride and the groom. I want the gospel to be elevated, and I want the bride and the groom to be elevated. And that's why... Royal weddings really intrigue me. I probably don't watch royal weddings the same way that you watch royal weddings. You you guys are thinking about the future King William, and you're thinking about the beautiful princess Kate Middleton, and you're, you're watching this beautiful romance. I'm watching the officiant. Because I'm like, if I mess up, it gets it's on a DVD somewhere in the closet, you know? If this guy messes up. He's not just ruined a bride's dream, dream, he's ruined the dream of an entire nation. Like, they've all been dreaming of this forever. And so I want you to look at this guy. You know what I see? A piece of furniture. This is a piece of furniture. And that's the way it's supposed to be. These royal weddings and our weddings, they're full of pomp and circumstance and, and grandeur and glory and exaltation. And they should be. But then there's the minister. <laughs> What's interesting is that what we see here is essentially the scene that is unfolding in the Song of Songs. That what we have in the Song of Songs is what the way I think a good way for us to think of it. It's a collection of poetry or it's an album of love songs that are meant to paint an idyllic picture as they remember a royal wedding, the wedding between Solomon and the Shulamite, the Solomon and his beloved. And so there's this, this, song, this album of songs that are, are playing and you can hear the different songs and the different choruses as you read through the various chapters and you crescendo in chapters 3, 4, and 5 as you reach the wedding and the honeymoon. But they're given to us the way songs are given to us. Not always full of hard reality, but, but painting a picture for us of what's idyllic what's intended, what's, what's right, what's, what's good, what we should long for, what we should yearn for, what we should hope for. And so this song is coming to this crescendo, but it's, it's showing you something of, of the internal workings of, of how they get there. And it's, it's showing you something of what passion for one another is supposed to look like. It's, it's painting for us a picture of what God intended marriage to look like and love to look like and sex to look like. In our relationships with the most significant other person in our lives outside of the Lord himself. But I think we also have to remember what Jesus says in Luke chapter 24. I think the Song of Songs is an easy place for us to lose track of what Jesus says, which is what we've built this entire series of the big story upon. Jesus says in Luke chapter 24 that he is the main character of all of Scripture. That all scripture in some way is revealing to us Christ. Revealing to us not necessarily him as an embodiment, but so much as how Christ reveals the gospel. That all of the books of the Bible are for us contributing to the narrative of redemption. Contributing to how we might have relationship with God and enjoy fellowship with God and rest in eternity with God, that they're all pointing us to the gospel. And so I think in one sense, we should see this album of songs as painting for us the ideal that we are to aim for in our own marriages and a pursuit that we are to experience with our mate or with our future mate. And at the same time, it is a parable of sorts. In the Old Testament, Parables are often given to us in real life experiences. Parables are often, the, the prophets didn't just sh- uh, teach parables, they often lived parables. You can think about Hosea and Gomer and how it was always a parable of, of God's unfaithful bride to him. And I think that's somewhat of what we see here in the Song of Songs. That, that yeah, it paints for us this idyllic picture of marriage, of what we should 
aim for and treasure and seek. And at the same time, at the same time, it's revealing to us something of the kingdom of God, something of our relationship with God, something of how Christ has come to secure us forever. And so what we're going to see over the next two weeks, looking at, at two this week and one next week, is we're going to see these three, lo- uh, these three dreamy scenes that ask for us three hard questions. Okay, So the first question I want us to ask this morning is, what if my dream doesn't last? What if my dream doesn't last? I, I want you to notice there in verse 1 what it says. And remember, this is the bride talking, okay? So this is the bride. I'm going to write that so that we can... See it, all right? And it says, on my bed by night. And so essentially what we most likely have here is a bride on the night, on the eve of her wedding. And so she goes to bed and you can imagine all of the butterflies that are there and all of the thoughts that are there as as she prepares to go and to make this commitment to her husband to, to consummate the marriage for the first time on the honeymoon. And she's having all of these thoughts she's wanted and dreamed of and lived for this moment for so long. But my goodness, now it's here. And there is something about approaching weddings that reveal insecurity in us, isn't there? There's something about approaching weddings. I'm thinking about the old movie with Julia Roberts and Richard Gere, The Runaway Bride. You know, like people started bringing to her like running shoes on her wedding day as, as gag gifts and things like that. But there's this part of us, all of us, I think that there's an inclination to flee it, to, to, to fear it, to doubt it in, in some way. Because there's something about when you have to look your dream right in the eye that it becomes surreal. That moment that you've been waiting for, that you've been longing for, that you've been planning for, that you've been counseling for, that you've been looking forward to. Now it's here and there's some big questions that come with that. Is, it, is he who I think he is? Is she who I think she is? Is, is the honeymoon going to live up to all of the hype? Is it going to last? Is it going to last? Maybe even more so in our day than even in hers. That was a question. But that seems to be at the forefront of what she's wrestling with as she lays there in her bed. And, and she's sleeping, but she's not resting. She's, she's dreaming, and her dreams are revealing these insecurities that are in her like our dreams often do. Often do. So if you look at the first two chapters of the Song of Songs, what you see is you have a bride that's really pursuing her groom. In fact, I'm going to point this out again in a minute. The bride is the initiator. and She's the, she's the opening speaker in chapter one of, of the song. And so she's been pursuing. But it says over and over, I sought you and I found you. I looked for you and I have you. I desired you and you are mine. But now, on the eve of her wedding, she says something different. She says, I sought him, but found him not. We're... We're getting a glimpse into her heart as she sleeps. What if, what if I'm not good enough for him? What if he doesn't love me the way that I love him? What, what if he isn't as committed to me as I am right now to him? What if this doesn't last? You're getting this glimpse into the heart of a bride who is afraid who is afraid that her husband, her beloved, is going to trounce upon her heart and betray her trust and betray her love. And so she goes and she, she seeks and she can't find him. And she goes out and, and she finds some watchmen. And she cries out at them. She's not embarrassed. She's trouncing social protocols. A woman speaking up in this culture out to strangers. And she says, have you seen my beloved? But they haven't seen her. They haven't seen him. They don't know where he is. And she's falling into the midst of despair and she's afraid of of what this might mean. Maybe she'll never see him again. Maybe he'll never come back. Maybe she'll never feel his embrace again. Maybe she'll never see that sparkle in his eye again. Maybe he'll he'll never compliment and encourage her again. Maybe that security is gone. And in her dream, it says in verse four, scarcely had I passed them when I found him whom my soul, not not my body, not my mind, my soul, my heart. We've talked about the the intensity with which the Hebrew understood the heart. Cognitively, effectively, volitionally, the one who me as an entire person loves and yearns for and desires, I found him. What does she do? She says, I held him and would not let him go. 
until I brought him into my mother's house. So this place of security, this place of respite, this place of safety. That is, in her dream, the way that she's able to comfort her insecurities is by clinging to the only thing that she feels like she knows. I love him and he loves me. So in my insecurity, in my doubt, in my worries, in my uncertainties, in my fears, in my trepidations, then what I'm going to do is I'm going to hold fast. I'm going to cling to this love that we share with one another. And I like that this is in the Song of Songs because it reveals reality of love, doesn't it? To love is to make yourself vulnerable, isn't it? To to, to really love someone is to let them in on who you actually are. It's to invite them in on your secrets. It's to lower your inhibitions. It's to lower your guard. It's to invite them to to know the hard parts of who you are and and the, the gruesome details of what your life story has been and to let them know what those insecurities are and to let them know what your sins have been and to let them know what your greatest fears in life are. It's to invite them in and it's to make yourself vulnerable because now they have information with which they can destroy you. They have a, a power over you by the information, by, by, by the opening of your heart to them that can cause them to bring lethal harm and pain into your life. That is, love is a great risk, isn't it? Love is a great risk. And there can be a, a, a way of understanding wisdom as wisdom saying, once we've been hurt, and look, I know, I, I know who I'm talking to this morning. Not all of you have had song of song type relationships in your marriages. I know that. A lot of you, you have divorces littered through your past. You have relationships littered through your past. You have relationship with your father that left you abused and disillusioned about the concept of love. I I get all of that. And as we go through the pain of the experiences of love, there can be a, a thought that it is wiser, it is wiser having been hurt to never love again so that I can never be hurt again. I made myself vulnerable and that person weaponized that vulnerability against me and crushed me and I will not go through that again because I'm wiser to that now. I'm smarter to that now. I've grown into that now. But you see, what the Song of Songs is revealing to us through the dream and the doubts and the insecurities of the bride here. And in fact, I think what we see throughout the scripture as we look at the relationship of God and his people and, and Christ and his disciples and the church among one another is that it is not wise to withdraw yourself from love. Rather, it is wise to take the risk time and again because, because though love can lead to the deepest pain, it also leads to the greatest delight. That wisdom says that the reality is, is that the risk is worth it because it leads to a delight that can come no other way. Now, of course, here it's primarily in the context of marriage, but that doesn't just apply to marriage. It applies to our friendships. That applies to our relationship together in the same church family. It applies to all of the relationships in our lives where we're invited. It It applies to our parenting. That that. In our hearts, if we are to follow after what the Lord has designed and the Lord has intended for our souls to be able to thrive and to flourish in the here and now, then we must realize that the risk of love is worth it. But there's a strange refrain that occurs three times throughout the song, and it really is calling you to reflect so through the, the bride's dream and her clinging to the love of her, of her, of her beloved, and when she finds him, that, that's telling us, risk it, man. Go for it. Go all in. Don't hold back. Like, like, give yourself over to the thought of love. Give yourself over to the pursuit of love. But then there's this refrain that happens in verse 5 that must have felt hypocritical. So what we have in verse 5 is you have the bride, and she's basically talking to her bridesmaids. Okay, She's talking to her maidens. And she says this, I adjure you, O daughters of, of, of Jerusalem, by the gazelles or the does of the field, that you not stir up or awaken love until it pleases. That in other words, what she's saying is it is a risk worth taking, but that doesn't mean that you go in naively. It's a risk worth taking, but it's not something that you should rush. It's not something that you should go in foolishly. 
It's not something that you should go in running on pure emotion and pure desire. In other words, I'm, I'm, you're all here and you're at my wedding and you see the relationship that I have with, with my beloved and you see the yearning of my soul and the desire and the pleasure that he brings and the delight that he brings. And it would be easy for you brides, uh, maidens, to look at that and want that and to go out tomorrow and get that. But I'm telling you that that, that is not the wise path either. There's this, there's this balancing that's taking place. That what she's telling her is, is be be be. Be deliberate as you pursue these relationships. Be, be slow to arouse yourself to sexual desire. Be, be slow to pursue someone that is to be your beloved forever. Be, be slow, be methodical, be thoughtful, be, be wise, be careful. That is, I think what we see in this refrain is a corrective to the catastrophe that is modern dating. You know what I, I see a lot of modern dating? We, we wonder why the divorce rate is so high. You know why I think it, one of the reasons, it's not the reason, it's a contributing reason. It's because what we allow our children and ourselves to do as we grow and mature is we have in all of these many marriages and then we practice many divorces over and over and over. We have 13 and 14 year olds with their boyfriend or with their girlfriend and they're getting what amount to engagement photos at photo shoots together. And then they're destroyed and distraught when the relationship comes to an end. And then they go through the cycle again and again. And by the time they're in their 20s, they are cynical toward love. And by the time that they're married, when it gets hard, the eject button is right there because I've done that five times before in significant relationships. No, 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 no. There's to be a trepidation as we enter in. There there is to be a a wisdom as we enter into these relationships. There is to be a a consideration. Is this relationship really moving toward marriage? Or is this really just the satisfaction of some some emotional desire that I have in the here and the now? Am Am I listening to what wisdom says when wisdom says enter into love cautiously? Oh, moms and dads, let's not support many divorces and many marriages. Let's let's invite our students to pursue something that is going to build them up and help them. Students, I'm telling you, I'm telling you that God's design, and this if you get nothing else, this is what I want you to get. God's design is better than the world's way. God's design is better than the world's way. The world makes it look good on Netflix and good on on. Uh, on Instagram and, and it makes it look good on TikTok and then what you find is the shame that's waiting for you on the other side and the pain that's waiting for you on the other side and the scars that are waiting for you on the other side and here is this bride caught up in the emotion and she has the sobriety in this moment to say go after love, risk your life for love oh but don't do it too soon don't do it too soon now as we go into uh, verse 6 what we have is the bride is awakening the bride is awakening and she's awakened. It seems like she's almost awakened by off in the distance. She hears instruments playing and, and shouts of joy that are coming because what she sees miles and miles away as though it's a, a pillar of cloud as she sees her wedding processional, her beloved is coming after her on the day of her wedding. Listen to what it says, verse, beginning in verse 6. What is that coming up from the wilderness like columns of smoke perfumed with myrrh and frankincense? With all the fragrant powders of a merchant, behold, it is the litter of Solomon. Around it are 60 mighty men, some of the mighty men of Israel, all of them wearing swords and experts in war. Each with a sword on his thigh against terror by night, King Solomon made himself a carriage from the wood of Lebanon. He made its posts of silver, its back of gold, its seat of purple. Its interior was inlaid with love by the daughters of Jerusalem. Go out, O daughters of Zion, and look upon King Solomon with the crown with which his mother crowned him on the day of his wedding, on the day of the gladness of his heart. And so this beautiful picture is unfolding for us if you see it. You have the bride, and she's there in her chambers, and she spent the whole night tossing and turning, worried about all of these big questions that come about in weddings, wrestling with insecurities that are real as you prepare to give your life over to someone else, to open yourself up to the vulnerability of love and the risk of love. And she's met there with the assurance of her husband, with the assurance of her husband that that. She comes to with this dream and she's clinging to love with all that she has. What she sees is out in the distance that her husband, he has not betrayed her. He has not fallen away from her. Instead, he is coming in pursuit of her. He is coming, seeking her out. And when he comes, this is not insignificant. 
He comes bringing with him four assurances that are meant to comfort her in the midst of her doubt. Four assurances that are meant to comfort her in the midst of her doubt. And these are the same four assurances that we should see in our relationships. These are the same four assurances that we need from one another time and time again. Look at what what, what he does. So first of all, verse 6, what is that coming up from the wilderness like columns of smoke? perfumed with myrrh and frankincense, with all the fragrant powders of a merchant. So the, the, the picture here and the poetry is that they're burning so much incense that there's such a, 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 a strong perfuming of the processional that there's this cloud that's hovering around them and that the, the, the smell of the perfume is reaching the maidens in the bride's chamber miles and miles away. And it's a picture of provision. That in other words, what the husband is doing by this great show of extravagance, at least one of the things that he's doing, is he's going and he's saying, you are going to be provided for always. I'm going to take care of you. I'm going to see to it that you receive not just any old thing. I'm going to see to it, because I love you, that you are going to receive the very best of what I can provide for you. I'm always going to do that for you. Okay? Now, look at the second provision, verse 7. Behold, it is the litter of of Solomon. Around it are 60 mighty men. Some of the mighty men of Israel. You remember what we talked about? David was one of the mighty men. Mighty men would go down and, man, with a sword, they could slay thousands alone. So what do we see here? Picture of protection. She's insecure, remember? She's worried about the future. And here is Solomon coming, not out to battle. Not out to battle. Men, we can be so utilitarian in our, in our shows of affection. We can be so utilitarian in our, our demonstrations of passion and our demonstrations of love. But not Solomon. He doesn't need 60 mighty men. He doesn't need all the swords. There's nobody there ready to fight him. Instead, it's not about utilitarianism. It's about, it's about love and zeal and earnestness and sincerity. It's about a show of affection for his woman. That he's coming, he's saying to her in the loudest language possible with 16 exclamation points, I'm going to protect you. I'm going to take care of you. I have the baddest men in the secret service. They're coming to rally around you. You never have to worry about anything. Now, that's not enough. That's not enough. And brothers in Christ, I want to tell you straight up, man to man, eyeball to eyeball, that I've done enough marriage counseling for you to know it is not enough for you just to protect and provide. It's right, it can't be less than that, but it must be more than that. It must be more than that. And we see that in in Solomon. Skip down in verse 11. It says, go out, O daughters of Zion, and look upon King Solomon with the crown with which his mother crowned him on the day of his wedding, on the day of the gladness of his heart. I want you to think about what he's saying. He's saying, on the best day of his life. On the day of the gladness of his heart. The day in which his heart has been happy. This is the man that's the king. This is a man that has all that you can have. Has wealth and riches and prestige and prominence. And yet he says, I would give all of that up. The the happiest day of my life is not when I was coronated as king. It is not when I was the leader and commander of the Lord's army. The happiest day of my life is when you, you became my beloved forever. So what do we see here? Passion. Passion. Brothers in Christ. What she needs most from you is not provision and protection. That's a bare minimum. What she needs most from you is to know that she is the apple of your eye, that she is the passion of your heart. This extravagance isn't just to show that I'm a good provider for you. This extravagance is to show there is no end to which I won't go for you. There is no no limit upon what I will do for you. I care about you. You are the one that makes my heart glad. You are the one that brings me joy. You are the one that is, that, that, that are my, is my passion in all these things that I do. I, I wake up in the morning, I'm happy I'm your husband. I go to bed at night, I'm happy that I'm your husband. There's a passion. I want you to think about what, what, how it would comfort that doubting bride in her chamber as she looked out over the horizon and she saw her smiling groom. She saw her shouting groom. She saw how excited and thankful he was to come. How when she, he came up and stood there in the doorway to bring her out of the processional and march her across town as they did in these days. How there was that twinkle in his eye, that, that tear that was welling up as he was trying to control it and fight it back. Man, that passion would soothe those doubts, wouldn't it? 
And then he gets to the ultimate question. That ultimate question of, of, will my dream last? Is it real? Look at what he does. The day of his wedding. Wedding. What is that talking about? Permanence. Right? Permanence. I don't know if I spelled that right. I don't think I did. You know what? Permanence. <laughs> the day of, that, in other words, what he's saying is, I'm not just going to provide for you today. I'm not just going to protect you today. I'm not just passionate about you today. This is forever, baby. This is forever. I'm going to be this person for you forever. I am all in with you forever. He's giving her something on the wedding day that she can preach to all those doubts that come, to all of those insecurities that come. See, secure love makes for secure people. Secure love makes for secure people. And there are times in all of our relationships in which we have to be able to voice and present these types of assurances to the other person when they're doubting. Sometimes it's the husband to the wife. Sometimes it's the wife to the husband. Sometimes it's both the people proclaiming and exclaiming these things together. But we need those assurances. And one of the things that you find throughout the song is that they don't have this stoic, distant relationship where, where love is assumed. Throughout the song, it is written, and they are, they are declaring back and forth and singing back and forth and talking back and forth and communicating to one another that you are my beloved, and you are what I want, and you are what I long for, and you I am all in with forever. There's no amount of years that passes by in which you can just assume that your spouse is secure. They need to hear it. They need to hear it. They need to see it. They need to know it. Brothers in Christ, she needs to hear it from you. doesn't matter what kind of car you bought her. doesn't matter what kind of gifts you bought her. She needs to know that she is your passion and that that passion is permanent forever. As we begin to un, un, understand that secure people lead to secure love, that's what really begins to bring into to view this image of Christ that I think that we're seeing, this image of the gospel that we're meant to see. You see, throughout the Old Testament, Israel was always referred to as Yahweh's bride. Now, typically, typically, it was, Israel was referred to as Yahweh's bride because Yahweh was the faithful groom and Israel was the unfaithful bride. And yet the picture was always God is still going to provide for you. God is going to protect you. God is, that you are the passion and the apple of his eye as his particular people. And the relationship that you have with God is permanent. It is forever. Because he's in covenant with you. Because it's based upon God's goodness and not upon your goodness. And so this picture throughout the Old Testament is this, this, this people that are, are wedded to a groom that is far exceeds all of them, a groom that is constantly meeting them in their doubts and meeting them in their insecurities and meeting them even in their failures and unfaithfulness with, with his assurances and his goodness and his glory and his passion. Oh, now, fast forward to the New Testament. Fast forward to the New Testament. And do you know how the New Testament closes? The New Testament closes with a wedding processional in which the bride of Christ, the church, is married to the groom, Christ, where we are brought together. Listen, listen to what it says in Revelation 19. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters, like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, crying out, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and the bride, that's us, has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints and the angel said to me write this blessed are those who were invited to the marriage supper to the celebration of the lamb and he said to me these are the true words of God do you see the picture and I want, I want, I want to slow down for just a second not all of you are in the kind of marriage that is going to bring into your life these assurances some of you are in marriages that seem to upend that continually some of you have wanted to be married all of your life and you are not married some of you have been married and there have been times where it, when it started off it was good, but now you are no longer married and that, that dream seems like it was shattered a long time ago. And you hear me talking about provision and protection and passion and permanence and you wonder like, how do I fit into the picture? You fit into the picture because you have a greater groom. 
You fit into the picture because you are in the bride of Christ and we are marrying a groom that will always provide for us, who will always protect for us, who has showered his passion upon us through the cross of Jesus Christ, has been raised again so that we can know that that relation with him is permanent forever. Oh, brothers and sisters, don't read these words without letting it draw your heart toward Christ. Don't read these words without it letting your, your mind wander into the wedding supper of the Lamb. That, that celebration, imagine when that sky splits and it's like Solomon a long way off and you see the cloud of glory that is all around him and the fragrance of the Savior sweeps across the earth and the only thing that is left is the bride of Christ presented up to him in purity. Oh man, it's gonna last forever. See, the day of the Lord is going to make your best day every day. The gladness of your heart, the day of the gladness of your heart becomes the new reality. Leads us to a second question I want us to cover this morning. What if Eden is just a dream? What if Eden is just a dream? So when we begin to get into chapter 4, the, the wedding ceremony has passed. And we're entering into the time of the honeymoon. And, and honestly... The Song of Songs is really climaxing in the honeymoon more than in the wedding. That the crescendo of the song is really aimed at chapter 4 more than even chapter 3, which seems perhaps odd to us because we're in a day in which the honeymoon has been devalued in a way that it was not in the original context. But what the wedding is meant to do is to provide us the context for which, whoa, hello, I'm so glad that y'all are still here, and I am too, that y'all weren't raptured out. (laughs) But the wedding provides for us the context for everything else that's been happening in the book. That throughout the book you have this yearning, and it means quite literally a physical yearning for one another. And and, and, And the book concludes with the physical satisfaction with one another, but... What we're meant to see is that that happens in the context of a marriage. That it happens in the context of a marriage. In other words, the way that the Song of Songs is is highlighting the honeymoon is by placing it within its proper context so that we can see that the desire that we read about in 1 and 2 and the experiences that we read about in 5, 6, 7, 8 are pure, wholesome desires. That they are right desires. See, many of you grew up in the 90s and early 2000s era like I did, and you were, you were maybe subjected to the purity movement. And I think there were some good things that, that came from the purity movement, but I think there were some negatives that also came from the purity movement. And I think that for many of us, the way sex was always presented to us is it was always presented in, the, in a term of don't do's, Right? It was always presented in in the context of of negativity and it was always presented in the context of of danger and and fear and worry and and I think it even painted up some unrealistic expectations of what the, the future was going to look like. But what we see in the Song of Songs is that it just won't abide. That doesn't that doesn't work. That doesn't last. Yet Proverbs gives us the wisdom of abstaining from immoral sex. And God is, is, is anti-immoral sex. But the Song of Songs highlights and elevates for us the, uh, the wonderful design and intention of God in marital sex. That it is supposed to be a consummation of wholesome desire that is beautiful and powerful. And in fact, in fact, gospel-centered. And, and, and that's where I think, again, talking to the students especially and talking to singles, like the, the way that the world frames up Christianity is that we're against everything, that God's against everything, that God's against freedom, that God is oppressive, that, that religious systems are oppressive. It's because they don't know God. It's because they don't know him. They're talking about somebody they don't know. They're talking about a book they don't understand. Because what we learn is that God, throughout Scripture, not just in the Song of Songs, but particularly in the Song of Songs, is not anti-freedom. He is pro-freedom. In fact, he is so pro-freedom that he is anti any imposters of freedom that will lead to your destruction. That God is pro the right kind of freedom. The kind of freedom that enables you to flourish. The kind of freedom that enables you to, to, to thrive as an image bearer of the Almighty. The kind of, the, kind of, the kind of freedom that allows you to live without shame and guilt and scars and pain. But where there is freedom, married couples, there is freedom indeed. There is freedom indeed that is intended to be enjoyed by the couple. 
Let's read the first eight verses of chapter four. And there is some imagery here, so y'all, y'all just stay with me. This is Solomon talking to his bride on the moment of his honeymoon. Behold, you are beautiful, my love. Behold, you are beautiful. Your eyes are doves behind your veil. Your hair is like a flock of goats leaping down the slopes of Gilead. Your teeth are like a flock of shorn ewes that have come up from the washing, all of which bear twins, and not one among them has lost its young. Your lips are like a scarlet thread, and your mouth is lovely. Your cheeks are like halves of a pomegranate behind your veil. Your neck is like the Tower of David built in rows of stone. On it hang a thousand shields, all of them the shields of warriors. Your two breasts are like two fawns, twins of a gazelle that graze among the lilies. Until the day breathes and the shadows flee, I will go away to the mountain of myrrh and the hill of frankincense. You are altogether beautiful, my love. There is no flaw in you. Come with me from Lebanon, my bride. Come with me from Lebanon. Depart from the peak of Amana, from the peak of Sinir and Hermon, from the dens of lions, from the mountains of lepers. So what we're given here in the moment of his honeymoon is Solomon is painting for us a picture from his perspective of what this wholesome desire is meant to look like. What, a, what wholesome desire in the context of a marriage is intended to communicate to one another. I want you to think about the, the pictures that we have here. The first thing that we see Solomon do is he accepts his bride. He accepts his bride. I'm getting this in verse 6. It says, until the day breathes and the shadows flee, I will go away. Now this is being stated implicitly throughout this passage in chapter 4, but it's stated explicitly here. And I say it's an acceptance because, surprisingly, throughout the song, the bride has been the initiator. The bride has been the one that has been inviting her husband into her chambers. The, the, the bride has been the one that has is, that is shown first a, a physical yearning to initiate this invitation that she makes in one and two to her groom to come to me and, and let's consummate our relationship with one another. And so what we have here in chapter five after, or chapter four and five after the wedding is we have the, the groom saying, yes, I accept the invitation. Yes, that's what I want to. Yes, I've been yearning for you. Yes, I've been looking forward to this. And he begins to describe to her in beautiful detail all the thoughts that he has and all of the, the exclamation in his life. But this is important because there are too many uh, marriages that are characterized by rejection and not acceptance. Some of it's stated, some of it's implicit. Some of it comes from, so, from emotional distance. Some of it comes from a persistent no in the bedroom. But there's this relationship here that is wholesome and desires. And when one desires the other, when it's done in the right context and in the right way and at the right time, it is supposed to be beautiful. And the acceptance of the invitation time and again is a reminder that I accept you. Oh, men and women, brothers and sisters, husbands and wives, Your wife, your husband needs to know that they have your acceptance. In a world that is always telling them they don't measure up. In a world that's always telling them that they're not pretty enough or they're not strong enough or they're not a good enough provider or they're not successful enough or they're not a good enough mother. In a world that is filled with all of these insecurities and all of these measuring sticks, the bedroom of the wedding is one of the places in which we are supposed to look and say, I accept you, the full you, the total package. I want you. It's wholesome. That's not all he does, though. In fact, I think there are some, there, there, there would be the possibility that there would be some husbands to look at their wives this morning and say, see, I told you, you always reject me. That's why the second part is important. Because that alone is not enough. That alone is not enough. The second part is, is that we see he elevates his bride. He elevates her. Look at, look at what he says in verse 7, because we know verse 7 is not even true. And, and I don't mean that in, a, in an inerrant scripture way. I mean in like a real life way. He says, you are altogether beautiful, my love. There is no flaw in you. Chapter one literally opens up with the bride saying, I've got all these flaws. I'm not beautiful enough for you. I'm not pretty enough. Like she's admitting I'm not perfect and I know I'm not perfect. But what is he saying? Oh, you are perfect for me. You are perfect for me. In my eyes, I declare you flawless. Throughout the language, in in these two chapters, five different times he calls her bride. He calls her the Tower of David. That means that she is unassailable, that, that she is of such a high esteem, that she is preeminent among all of the other women in all of the world. 
He, says, he, he begins to describe her in this very detailed language that makes some of us uncomfortable. A, a way that he says, I exalt you in my mind. I exalt you in my heart. That you're not just my passion in words. I can tell you ex- explicitly right now all of the things about you that I treasure, all the things about you that I value, all the ways in which I extol you. You know what's interesting to me about that here? Solomon doesn't talk about himself one time, does he? He doesn't talk about himself. In other words, this isn't just about him. This isn't just about him satisfying his needs or his hormonal impulses. That one of the primary means of him, one of the primary purposes of the marital bed for Solomon is to extol, to elevate his bride. And brothers, I believe, I believe with all of my heart that if we were better about extolling and elevating our bride in a way that is not nefarious, in a way that doesn't just come on every time that we are in the mood, but instead are elevating our bride continually around the clock and affirming her and building her up and praising her, that acceptance would come much easier. That our invitations wouldn't come across nearly as false. And vice versa is certainly true as well. But what we see in this wholesome desire is that, yes, he accepts her, but he, he extols her. He, he elevates her. But look at what else he does. He respects her. He respects her. Look at verse 8. He says, come with me from Lebanon, my bride. Come with me from Lebanon. Depart from the peak. So, in other words, what he's doing there in verse 8 is he's inviting the bride into his bed. Now she's already initiated, she's already given an invitation earlier, and he's already said that I'm going to accept your invitation, but that's not all. He, he goes and he says, I want to revisit, I'm inviting, I'm not commanding you. I'm not guilting you. I'm not insisting upon you. I'm inviting you. Then in other words, he looks at his bride with dignity. He treats her as someone to be treasured. He treats her with someone who has authority over her body in the relationship. He, he, he treats her as someone that, that, is, that, is, that, is, that, that he wants to see that he admires her, that he treasures her. He longs for her, but he is not going to steamroll her. He's not going to trounce her. Oh, how much different would our marriages be if they were built on that kind of foundation? How much different would they be if they were built on acceptance, upon uh, extolling, and upon respect? How much different would our marriages be if in our relationship, and what we begin to see here in the Song of Songs and in the, the playing out of the honeymoon is that sex is not just what our, as our world says, an action of the body. It is not just a physical experience. It is not just a hormonal experience. It is not just a physical need. It is something that intertwines relationship, soul, and body in a way that is holistic, that is meant to bring us together in that Genesis 2 way, where two become one flesh. This is why Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6, when you sin sexually, it's different than other sin because now you are sinning within the body. There is something that happens internally within you, in your soul, in your heart, because God has woven this together. So we see this wholesome desire, but what we also see is that wholesome desire is meant to lead to wholesome desire is meant to lead to shameless delight. Wholesome desire is meant to lead to shameless delight. Verse, chapter 5, verse 1, he says, I came. And this, my garden, is a euphemism. My sister, my bride. I gathered my myrrh and with my spice. I ate my honeycomb with my honey. I drank my wine with my milk. He's coming and he's saying, I have experienced a satisfaction that the greatest wine and the sweetest milk cannot bring. I have experienced a satisfaction that that the the richest garden could not provide for me, that the most expensive spices cannot, cannot give over to me, that there is an experience of delight here that is unlike anything that you find in a pornography movie or a film, or or it's different than anything that you're going to find on Netflix. It's bigger than anything that you can find in a one-night stand or in a short-term relationship. There is is a a pleasure, there is a permanence, there is a a passion that comes when there is is, is a whole wholesome delight leading to this, a wholesome uh, desire leading to this, this, this shameless delight. It means his experience, in other words, is completely different than the way many of you have experienced sex in your life. You experience sex via pornography, it leads to shame. You experience sex outside of marriage and relationships that don't last, and it leads to shame. 
You experience sex in the context of a drunken stupor, and it leads to, it leads to shame. And what's crazy is when you really begin to unpack the design of God, sex is supposed to be about the elimination of shame. It's supposed to be about being with a person in which you can lower your inhibitions and be fully vulnerable and fully exposed and and fully raw and out there. And that person is accepting you and that person is enjoying you and that person is extolling you and that person is is coming and, and they are wanting to be with you more than any other person in all of the world. That is, that one of the mysteries, one of the mysteries of sex is that it gives us a glimpse of Eden. That moment in which God made man and woman and he placed them in the garden and they were naked and unashamed. That fleeting as it is and unlasting as it is, that that moment in the marital bedroom is supposed to be a fleeting quick glimpse of what God really intended for you. In fact, I think scholars have, have rightly said that the Song of Songs really is an unpacking of what happens in Eden in the garden. There's these constant allusions, as we saw right here, to the garden. Sometimes they are actually in the garden. Sometimes the garden is a euphemism, but they're always referring to the garden. We have two people who are at the height of their life, and they're youth, and they're handsome, and they're beautiful, and they're virile, and they're, they're vital, and they're vibrant. And then something incredible happens. They're with one another. They're unashamed. And look at the second part of verse 5. Look at this section right here. See, it's really hard to see. And the reason in your ESV that it, it alternates who's speaking, he, she, them kind of thing, he, she, others, is because in the Hebrew, it's shifting pronouns really quick. And we can't really see the feminine and masculine pronouns. And so they know who's talking, but it's hard for us to see who talk, who's talking in the English. And so the translators interject that so that we can understand. But you'll notice that nobody knows exactly who's talking. It's not Solomon. The, the pronouns shift in that second part of verse 5. But it's not, talk, it's not, it's not the, the, the way the bride usually talks, and it's not the way the groom talks, and it's not the way that the others, the maidens typically talk. It's, it's somebody else talking, and some think it's the narrator, and some think that it's others, but most think, most think that God is injecting a thought here, that God himself is speaking. Eat, friends, drink, and be drunk with love. That in other words, just like in the Garden of Eden, when God made man and God made woman and the two became one flesh and God said, and it was very good that here in the Song of Songs you have a bride and a groom coming together who love each other, who who are committed to each other in the permanence of marriage and they come together and the two become one flesh and God is again saying, and it is very good. It is very right. See, we read Genesis chapter two sometimes and we wonder if it's just a fairy tale. Is the Garden of Eden just a fairy tale that Christians have invented to tell us about how the world has, has come about? But no, 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 no. What we see in the Song of Songs and what we experience in our marital beds when love is at its best is what we see is that God is giving us in Genesis 2 what he intended. And what we read in Revelation is that Christ is bringing it all back to be so that there is a new heaven and a new earth so that we will experience shamelessness forever. That this is pointing us forward to a grander picture. This is pointing us forward to a grander processional. This is pointing us forward to a grander honeymoon, a pleasure, a shamelessness, a satisfaction that will not be extinguished for millions and millions of years, and that'll just be the start. Let's pray to the Lord together. Thank you for watching or listening to one of our sermons. We would love to have the opportunity to connect with you one-on-one. We are not a perfect church, but we are a joyful church, and we want to help you increase your joy in Christ. We would love for you to come and worship with us one day soon. You'll be able to find information about our worship services, about who we are, what we believe, what we do, and what we're hoping to accomplish on our website at ironcity.org. And we would invite you to go and to check out all the information there. We look forward to seeing you soon. 